Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Emily Harmon is a Chattanooga native, and her and her husband, Adam, are parents to three children. Emily works in business development for University Surgical Associates, where she educates the community on the 35 amazing surgeons in the practice and all of their subspecialties. After having two healthy babies, she found out she was pregnant with number three, and they were thrilled. During a 20-week anatomy scan, she was told that her baby had water on the brain, which could mean headaches for life or the need for a shunt implanted in her brain. Emily was referred to the high-risk clinic, and the baby was diagnosed with spina bifida at L4 and L5. She was referred to Texas at Baylor University to undergo a surgery where they would close the baby's spine and utero. After weeks of testing, it was determined that she did not qualify for the study after all. She was then referred to Vanderbilt Medical Center. Dolly was born on July 18th of 2018 and had surgery to close her spine only 48 hours after she was born. They were told that Dolly would never walk, never bend her knees, and would likely develop hydrocephalus and have a shunt implanted. Dolly is doing wonderful today. With all of the appointments and surgery she has undergone, it's been a challenge, but the Harmons are forever grateful for this gift and hope to support other families who feel overwhelmed and hopeless. We are honored to have Emily on the podcast with us today. Uh, Welcome, Emily. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're glad you're on today um, virtually. Um, All right, well, let's just get started a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about y'all's journey. Okay, so let's see. We were married um, I was 27 when we, were, when we were married, got pregnant with my first baby at age 31, healthy pregnancy. Um, two years later, we gave birth to our second child, Brooks, who was a boy. So it was Lola, girl, Brooks, boy. And then five years ago, we gave birth to our youngest, Dolly. At the 20-week scan, we thought we were going in just for a normal scan. and. Um, During the anatomy scan, we were told that she had water on her brain, which I wasn't sure what that meant. So went to the high-risk clinic the next day, and we were told that she had myelomeningocell spina bifida. Okay, go back to uh, where you said 20-week. So you were at the 20-week anatomy scan with, with Dolly. Right. And at that scan, we went in, we thought it was just a normal checkup. I didn't even realize it was the anatomy scan. And um, during the scan, they told us that Dolly had water on her brain and also on her kidney. So um, they referred us to the high-risk clinic. And in that appointment, which was the next day, um, they confirmed that Dolly actually had what's called myelomeningocell spina bifida. Okay. And then, so that was the diagnosis at the high risk, right? Right. Okay. And then, so tell me kind of just in that, how y'all are feeling. Are you already working in the medical world? So you know some or not? No, we were in a 
kind of a dark place in our lives, honestly. Like things were not really going our way. There was a lot of struggle, um, lots of tension. Um, I I had had some previous experience in the medical field, not as much with pediatrics, um, but I still did have some connections. So when she told us that we had um, that Dolly had myelomeningocele spina bifida. I mean, you know, our your whole world is just turned upside down. You don't even know what that means. Your first question is, is my baby going to die? It, you know, what does this diagnosis mean and how do we fix it? Yeah. So after that, did you start um, pretty regularly going to the high-risk doctor? So right then and there, she actually referred me to Texas Children's Hospital in Houston within Baylor. Um, and they were in the midst of doing a clinical trial where they actually, so spina bifida is where part of the baby's spine does not close. And that part of the spine is actually creating severe nerve damage because the amniotic fluid has direct access to the spinal column, the nerves and everything um, underneath the level that it's affecting. So um, she actually referred me to Texas Children's Hospital where um, they were conducting a study where they could close the baby's spine in utero. Wow. So she sent me to Texas thinking that I would have this surgery where they would operate on her while she was still in my uterus and they would close her spine, close up my uterus, and then I would be bedridden for the remainder of the pregnancy um, in hopes that, you know, everything would be okay. So one thing we did find out from that trip to Houston was that we were not candidates for the study, um, which was devastating, you know, yeah. because we'd already been what felt like fired once, right, from our regular OBGYN. And then it felt like we went to the high-risk clinic and like our problem was too big there too. So then we were sent to Texas and our problem was too big for even them. And so it was just like, oh my gosh, like what are we doing? How do we fix this? Where do we go next? Kind of thing. Yeah. So they referred us to Vanderbilt. Um, the guys at Texas Children actually, they trained with some of the neurosurgeons at Vanderbilt. So us not qualifying for the study actually meant that Dolly had a better scenario than most of the babies that were enrolled into that study. So it was Devastating news because we didn't know who was going to take care of us, but it was also positive in the sense that she was at a lower risk for actually getting hydrocephalus, um, which is the water on the brain ends up with a shunt in the brain, um, and that she just had spina bifida. So her spine still needed to be closed, but they weren't as worried about the water on her brain and the brain damage that could take place. Basically, when they're doing clinical trials, um, the goal of the trial was to show that if the baby was operated on in utero, then the chances of the baby getting hydrocephalus later in life would decrease tremendously. Okay. But what they saw with Dolly is that she was not at high risk for getting hydrocephalus. And so having her spine closed in utero would not actually like tremendously benefit her. Okay. Okay. And so really that clinical trial was more for those that had that concern down the road, the hydrocephalus right. part. 
Okay. Right. I think it's something like 85% of children with spina bifida end up getting hydrocephalus. There's a really high okay. um, number associated with it. So. so they say no, and then they say, okay, your next best, your next best option is Vanderbilt. So right. y'all come back home, head up to Vanderbilt and see those neurosurgeons. Yes. Okay. And it was lovely. Because we walked in, first of all, we were on 10 care at the time and Vanderbilt is 10 care. So that was lovely. But also just walking in, they were like, oh my gosh, we're so glad you're here. And it felt like finally we had found the spot that could handle our like issue. We've, it just felt safe. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I felt like we were going to be okay. So their recommendation is to continue throughout the pregnancy. And then basically when it was time to give birth, I would have to have an emergency C-section because what happened is since her spine wasn't closed, there was a, a huge, they, they refer to it as a lesion, but it was like a fluid filled sac on her spine that was full of the amniotic fluid and also the opening to her spinal column that um, holds the nerves to the rest of your body. Right. And so within 24 to 48 hours after the baby is born, the spine has to be closed in order to not have infection set in in order to not damage the remaining nerves. So it's like this, insane crunch time. So basically I could not deliver her vaginally. Um, I had to have a C-section and it needed to happen before I started contracting um, because there was a chance that that fluid filled sac on her spine, if I was contracting, it could have ruptured that, which could have just been. So the whole rest of the pregnancy was stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And your other kids are how old at this time? So um, let's see. Lola was five and Brooks was two. So they were wow. little. And yeah. it was this whole, you know, back and forth thing of like, what if we're in the NICU for eight weeks after or what? It was just it was really um, logistically a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, trying to chase them around and be yeah. concerned about your own health. So you continue to see Vanderbilt. Are you still also seeing your high risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was still going to the high risk. Yeah, well, the OB at this point had fallen off, and now my OB became just the rock. Um, it was Dr. Angela Hawk. She's phenomenal. She was so wonderful during the whole thing. So. I would go get like weekly ultrasounds through her and she would just kind of keep an eye on me. And then I think I was 36 weeks where I just started feeling really close and I was so nervous. And so um, I was like, we need to go ahead and go. Like, I don't want to be this far away. I don't want to be life flighted to Vanderbilt. You know, it's like all the nerves set in of like, you know, this baby needs to come out safely and they need to operate on her and close her spine and make sure that she's alive and all, all the stuff. So. Cause did Vanderbilt all along always want you to deliver close to Vanderbilt? Yeah. So if I would have delivered in Chattanooga, I would have had to be life flighted. Like they do have neurosurgeons in Chattanooga. They're not pediatric fellowship trained. So that was something that I just, you know, when it's your baby, 
you're mm-hmm. like so overprotective of the care they get, where they get it. So, um, yeah, if I wanted her to have the surgery by the neurosurgeons that were required or re- referred to me from the guys at Baylor, then I had to deliver at Vanderbilt because it was such a like once the baby is out of your body, it's like the the clock is ticking, you know. Yeah. Okay. So did y'all go on up there at 36 weeks ready to deliver or did you just kind of hang tight somewhere hoping you'd get a little farther or? It was crazy how amazing things fell into place. Like just, I, it's crazy. Like when you're in a situation like that, how many people around you just rally, like people were offering things that I didn't even think I needed, you know, like my brain was I was in a black hole. I had no idea. I didn't know up from down. And like one of my friends from high school, Sarah, her mom actually lived in Nashville. She had a condo two blocks from Vanderbilt and then she had a home. So she worked at Vanderbilt. So she kept that condo because of the traffic in Nashville. And she gave up her condo for us to stay so that when it was time to deliver, we could just pop over to Vanderbilt. So we went up. Um, thinking, you know, it could be another week or two. We weren't really sure. Um, but then like right when we got there the next morning, I went and got checked by one of their OBs and I was far enough along. They were like, we're just going to go ahead and we're going to move forward. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. So you get admitted, you Mm -hmm. know that you're doing a C-section and is this your first C-section? Yeah. Okay, so you know you're doing a C-section. They're kind of whole team prepped and ready. So um, the I'm sure the NICU was ready. Everybody was ready. Um, so you deliver. Are you able to even see Dolly, hold Dolly, any of that? Or is it pretty quickly she's taken to the NICU? So... It was crazy because I had worked in medical sales prior in life where I was working in the OR. So I was really familiar with an OR and my husband was standing next to me, you know, but I was looking up because it's so weird. C-sections are so weird, you know, like you feel them pulling on your body. You can see everything, hear everything. It's so bizarre. But I looked at the, um, the ceiling light and there was a reflection and so I could see the mirror reflection from the light of what was happening. Oh, heavens. Oh, goodness. It was, I was like, why did you do that? But yeah. also it was just like, you know, so the thing that got me was my husband's face. Like he is always so stoic and brave and he's always the calm one, like even keel. Like if I'm crossing the street, I just follow him because I know that he's looking out for me. and he was terrified. And I remember looking up to see his face. And I think I even like tried to get his attention. And he was just like, you know, not there. Like he, he had seen her already. And they did not show me her or they did, but they held her in a way that I could not see her back. And then Adam said that he tried to take a picture and the nurses were like, no, 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 like you have to scoot back. So they basically whisked her away directly to the NICU. Um, Yeah, I wasn't able to hold her for, I think it was like four days after I had her. So that was weird because I didn't know what was happening to her, but yet they're still sewing me up from a C-section and 
I'm telling Adam, go with the baby, go with the baby. Don't stay with me. Just go with her. It was crazy. It was traumatic for sure. And so that was in July of 2018. Because mm-hmm. I know you obviously were over on the um, adult side, right? And right. so she's in the children's hospital, being taken to the children's hospital. So Adam goes with her. You're still at the adult side. How long till you get to be wheeled over there to see her? I mean, it was like probably an hour or two and I'm like oh, taking to my baby, you know, but okay, it was right. like, I mean, they had to, it was a, it was a hall, right. It was like, yeah. like you're saying down a hall, down two elevators across a bridge. Like, yeah. and so once I got there, um, it was insane too. Cause there were so many things hooked up to her. Um, she was laying on her stomach and her back was covered to try to prevent infection Okay. Um, but then there was this thing where it was so crazy because like they were trying to get her cardiac clearance to prep her for surgery, right? You have to think like she was born yeah. and then they're already prepping her for surgery. Um, and so she was having some weird like heart arrhythmia, which that was a whole other thing. And it was like the clock was ticking for all of these tests to get to get approved. I think it was not until like the next day that they actually said, okay, her heart is okay. She can withstand surgery. Um, but yeah, it just happened so fast. So then I think it was the next day we were about 28 hours in, they took her back to surgery. And I remember before the surgery, the doctor said to us the, or actually, no, he tells us, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be about this long go walk around, get a coffee, like you'll be okay. And so we did that. We just tried to like decompress and stuff and the surgery's over and he comes in and he tells us, I was able to close her spine. Her lesion occurred at level L4 and L5 of her spine. Um, But part of it kind of went up to L3. So what I learned in that moment is that each level of your spine houses different houses, groups of nerves that affect different parts of your body. So the higher up that an injury is, the more likely, the more of your body is paralyzed, basically, the more nerve damage there is in your body. So for Dolly, you know, there's the S, the sacral spine, which is low. And then there's the lumbar spine, which is L. And then there's the thoracic spine at the top. So Dolly's was in her lumbar spine and it was L4 and L5, which was very low on the lumbar spine, but he said it kind of wrapped up to L3. So what that meant is that those levels would primarily affect her feet and ankles. They would be paralyzed and also her bladder and her bowel would be paralyzed. So it affects Mm -hmm. the organs and then also the joints. But based on how he thought it wrapped up a little higher, he said to us, your child's never going to walk. Like after surgery, he said, she's never going to walk. And that's that. And so I remember we left and we sat outside and I just remember both of us like trying to absorb like all of this and absorb the fact as parents to be told your child's never going to walk in that moment, that was our biggest fear. But there was so much more that went into it that we didn't know. It was just like, that's what you're always, it's just a, as a parent, you know, that's, a heavy load. And so we mourned that, like we mourned the fact our daughter's never going to walk. And then we went up to the NICU after to see her. 
And we're sitting with her, you know, I'm staring at her nonstop. And suddenly she starts kicking her knees, bending her knees Mm -hmm. up and down. And he had said, she'll never bend her knees. And I was like, she's moving her legs. She's moving her legs. He's like, I don't think so. He, I remember he did not believe us. He was like, yeah, I don't think so. But sure enough, she was. She was kicking her legs and bending her knees. And so that was like our first like, okay, she's awesome. And this is going to be awesome. It's going to be okay, you know? Wow. That's amazing. That is really yeah. amazing. And so, so lead me through that part. So even before when you were meeting with them and they are saying, you know, within 48 hours, we need to do surgery. Had they also kind of laid out what the recover would be after what they thought, like this is kind of, I know a lot of it depends on when she's born mm-hmm. as well, but did you have an idea of like, okay, I heard you say at one point, maybe eight weeks in the NICU. Did you have some kind of we're going to be here for a little while. If we did, I totally blacked that out. I think in my mind, we thought that we would be there for two weeks originally. Like that was our kind of, okay, we're going to be in the NICU for two weeks. And then after that, we don't know what's going to happen because I remember we had lined up an entire calendar on our wall at home with like, cause we're still dealing with the logistics of our other two kids, you know, like here's when they're going to come to Nashville. Here's when we're going to introduce them. So-and-so is going to be with them this week. And then next week, it's going to be someone else. And so I think that our plan was originally, we would be in Nashville for two weeks awaiting her birth and then two additional weeks after. So I think we had planned on four weeks in Nashville. But then obviously you delivered her very quickly when you got Mm -hmm. there. And so how long did she end up staying? She was not in the NICU that long. It was like a week. It's so crazy how you black this stuff out too. You know, it's like my friends are now having babies and it makes me remember little bits and pieces, but just how it's like such a black hole, you know, you literally have no idea what's going on. Um, but yeah, she was in there less than a week, which was mind blowing to me. I just remember thinking like, I mean, we became home health nurses overnight. Yeah. Like we were at Vanderbilt. We had this huge wound to care for. It was crazy. It was scary. We, she felt so fragile. You know, when she was born, her feet, both of her feet were 180 degrees completely upside down because of the nerve damage. Oh, wow. Um, and then she had this huge scar on her back with a lump where the fluid, the cerebral fluid from her brain um, was then piling into the spot on her back. And it was just, it was terrifying, especially to be Once we came home, then we were two hours from the doctors at Vanderbilt, you know? So it was like, how do we deal with this? She has all these staples in her spine. How do we, as a parent, you know, you think you're going to look at your baby and see these adorable little smushy toes and, you know, the smell of their head and all these things. And, you know, you're looking at your child, like everything you think you should see is not what you're seeing. Yeah. And it's it's really hard for your brain to like comprehend that, you know, and to like process that and for your even for your emotions to catch up with what your brain is thinking and for them all to be like in line and appropriate. It's like you almost have to turn off either your mind or your emotions because it's too much. Yeah. And so let me go back to that one part. So with her feet turns like that, mm-hmm. is that when they're operating to close her spine, do they, I mean, is there orthopedics in there? Like, how did that go about? So with spina bifida, there's, cl- so basically her feet, she has severe club foot. 
Um, okay. With kids that have spina bifida, they usually always have club foot, but Dolly's was really severe. Like they were completely upside down. The bottom of her feet were up, like you could see the bottom of her feet at all times. Um, so yeah, going into it, you're like, here's her team of doctors. She's going to have neurosurgeons. She's going to have orthopedic surgeons. She's going to have urologists for her bladder. She's going to need a gastroenterologist for her bowel, um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, like all these things. And so they basically prioritize it on like the most life threatening and then work from there. So like the first year of her life felt like it was all neurology, right? It was like making sure that she didn't get hydrocephalus. She didn't have water on her brain, that the fluid was draining properly. And then from there, they start looking into orthopedics. So then it's like, okay, now that we know she's stable here, we can start working on her feet, flattening them out, straightening them out. So then it went into like the surgeries on her feet. So she had the one giant surgery from the neurosurgeons that closed her spine. Um, And then we watched as she healed through that. We saw the bump on her back, the scar on her back, the fluid slowly started going to where it was supposed to go instead of to her brain. It started draining the way that it was supposed to drain. So within that time frame, all we were waiting is, is she going to need a shunt for her brain? If the fluid does not drain to where it's supposed to go, then it's going to go to her brain. And if that's the case, she's going to need a drain on her brain to pull that liquid off or else she'll die. So we're watching to make sure she doesn't need a, a shunt and that she doesn't get hydrocephalus. And so every visit is a brain MRI to check the fluid on her brain, to check her scar, to make sure that the fluid's going down in her spine. Um, and so that's the whole process. And then they start kind of sprinkling in a little bit of talks about orthopedics. You know, it's like they could, they would give you enough that you could absorb never too much. So it was like, okay, we think that her back is okay. We think that her brain, she's not at high risk for hydrocephalus. Everything is looking okay there. Um, so now let's start talking about her feet and the orthopedic side of things. Okay. And so that started about a year. Yeah, it started at about a year, maybe a little bit sooner. Um, and she, they started her with casting. They would cast her feet. So they would stretch them as far as they could get them. And then they would cast them. Yeah. And okay. every week we would drive to Nashville to have the cast removed and then them stretch it a little bit more and recast it. And then we would go the so next you week. Kept, so really your whole team, you continue to see all of them in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah, that was tough. But the reason we did it is because they have an entire team like devoted to spina. They have a whole thing called, it's called Spina Bifida Clinic. And it's an entire day where you see every professional, every doctor you need to see, you get all your imaging done, all your testing, and then they go through it with you. And so it's like one day of like, here's everything. Here's all your reports. They just, they didn't have that in Chattanooga. They didn't have that multidisciplinary collaborative approach. Yeah. Um, So my husband is an orthopedic surgeon and he focuses on pediatrics. Um, And so, and he has helped uh, launch here in Memphis, a uh, cerebral palsy multidisciplinary clinic. And so, you know, same sort of, you know, feel of the families go and they're there for a long time, but they're able to see all these different, you know, social work, 
physical therapist, nurse practitioner, occupational therapist, speech therapist, you know, on top of obviously seeing David as well. And um, because a lot of families that we interact with actually go to that clinic. And so he just had one um, last Wednesday and he called me, was like, so-and-so said to say hello. So-and-so said, he was like, I'm literally on CP clinic days. I'm Brittany's husband. I'm not <laughs> Dr. Spence. Uh, yeah. It's always them being like, are you Brittany's husband? Oh. I'm like, babe, you're saving them. I'm just <laughs> yeah. encouraging them. Like yeah. it's different. So anyways, I totally know. I, I'm, that's been such a blessing here in Memphis that they've started that as well. Um, Okay, so let me ask this. So that first year, tell me about her milestones. Is she, you know, meeting any of those? Or is it more of just, hey, we're going to be a good ways behind because our feet aren't even facing the right way. So I mean, we absolutely can't roll over or sit up or crawl. Tell me about that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that was interesting because um, developmentally, Dolly was on point with everything. Like she had no mental delays at all. She, um, she was rolling over. She was sitting up. She started to kind of like, you could see it's so interesting, right? Because we're so used to like what normal is and we're so used to seeing the normal milestones that kids go through that whenever you see somebody do it differently, it's so intriguing, but it's like this weird feeling inside of you, like where you're like, oh, bless her, you know, like, oh, she has to army crawl or she has to scoot on her bottom. Bless her. You know, you kind of feel yeah. bad. But for Dolly, that's all she's ever known. You know, like yeah. so Dolly would start her big way of moving around. She would scoot on her bottom. So uh, she yeah. would sit up okay. and then she would just start scooting with her hands. And I noticed that she was using her upper body a lot, which was we're like, okay, she's going to be really strong upper body. Yeah. Um, she, she started PT, I think, like she was like two weeks old when her physical therapist first came and saw her. And um, so, yeah, all the milestones, uh, everything was extra exciting, it felt like, you know, because yeah. we didn't know. We didn't know if she was going to be, quote unquote, normal mentally or developmentally, or we didn't know if it was going to be physical, if there was going to be brain damage. We had no idea. Um, so as she started to kind of giggle and talk and make jokes and she was tough as nails, it was just like, so fun to watch. And tell me about your other two. Were they just as like, you know, excited and into it or were they nervous? I mean, kind of how did that go? It's been so crazy to watch them. I think the biggest blessing out of all of it is honestly like the experience, not the best, but one of the greatest is watching my other two kids and how I like easily adaptable they are and how they pick up on things that we just don't. And like, like they, yes, they jump right in at a young age. I remember Lola was like already acting like a little mom. Like she knew when to help. She knew when like Dolly was going to be a little bit, have a little bit harder time doing something. And she always just jumped right in. Like she was carrying that baby (laughs) for, you know, just always helping. Um, And same with Brooks, like the way that they see her, it's, it's, it's made me so aware of the fact that it's, it's my heart that has the problem. You know, it's like, 
I've spent 41 years seeing life as normal in all these different ways. And this is abnormal. And so I always see the differences and the things that are kind of weird. And I feel hesitant and nervous and worried and scared. But the kids don't like, this is just so normal for them. And it's just been, that's been such a blessing to watch them like teach the world, you know, that this is still like lovable and acceptable. And I, I often have, I have worried a lot about, there's a, a term that I've heard used often called glass children. And that's children, siblings of children with disabilities, where people just see right through them and they see the child with the disability. That's something that's always been kind of on my forefront is the amount of attention that Dolly has naturally gotten, you know, and how I feel like that might be a little bit difficult for siblings specifically. I think it's probably been a little bit difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how we still parents too, Mike, trusting that good is going to come from this, whether it's in the profession they choose, whether it's in their own family slater, whether it's just even in the world, they're on a subway in a city one day and they see somebody that looks a little bit different and the way that they help them or love them or show kindness to them. Um, you know, there was purpose in that, you know, and honestly, every mom has some kind of concerns or guilt that they have, you know, ours is, you know, we definitely worry. I mean, we we named a nonprofit after our child that died and, you know, have three more children that are thriving and alive and well, and we don't have anything named after them. You know what I mean? So I think everybody kind of has that, man, I'm trying to do something good or I'm trying to have beauty from ashes, but in turn, is it going to be something that actually down the road? And at the end of the day, I mean... <laughs> I mean, I kind of jokingly say, like, I could save for college or I could save for therapy for my children. You know, I mean, <laughs> like there's going to be something, you know, right. in, in their lifetime. So I know that y'all are doing a great job. And I think that it's really a beautiful thing for me to see, uh, like you said, the way that siblings don't see the disability. They just see Dolly and that Mm -hmm. that's who Dolly is because that's all they've ever known. And so Mm -hmm. um, for them, I think it's just, she's Dolly. It's not Mm -hmm. Dolly with spina bifida or Dolly's feet weren't the right way or whatever. It's just Dolly. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me, um, you know, is there anything that you would want to share with families that maybe are going through similar circumstances? I think that something that's been really important to me is to know that one person saying something is not the end all. It's not the confirmation, right? Like the doctor who said she's never going to bend her legs. Like opinions are great. Second opinions are always wonderful. Don't take one person's word and think that it's the end all be all. Um, That's one thing. Another thing, I guess, is that this is a tough one. But one thing I've realized a lot is that like people want to rally. They want to love you. They want to support you. And it's hard to accept that at times. Right. But I think there's joy and there's joy that it makes their heart help happy to help you, you know? And so don't rob people of their joy. If they, if they want to gift you with a meal, with a babysitting, with kind words or a letter or 
a smile, like let them, even though it's really difficult because it gives them joy. And I think the truth of the matter is people don't know how to react when you're going through something traumatic, right? Like I didn't know how to act before I had Dolly. I had no idea. If I saw a little kid in a cute little wheelchair, I probably would have smiled too and been like, wow, that's the cutest thing ever. Um, And so I think that I've realized that I have a lot of heart things that I need to work on. Um, and I'm really trying to like let people be kind and offer support and offer love, but sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to touch on that too. I actually, um, just this past Wednesday went to, um, do a speaking thing and a mom was there speaking on behalf of a, another nonprofit and she actually, um, was diagnosed in the womb with her son having spina bifida in a small town. Um, And that small town um, doctor said, you know, there's no, in essence, you should abort. There's no compatibility with life on and on. And she was like, okay, well, we're going to go somewhere else. And so um, she drove to Memphis to Lebanon and they were like, no, we can do this for sure. And he's had 12 surgeries in his lifetime. um, And but he's alive and well and thriving. And so she was the same thing of like, there's a reason. And and I feel like I especially feel this way, knowing how much schooling my husband went to that, you know, he went to four years med school and then he went to five years residency. And then he did a whole nother year, just pediatric orthopedics, just to understand children. You know, there's a reason that there are these specialists and that they are at these top notch places and that you really should get a second opinion, at least of, you know, especially if the first person is giving you something very dire and something that you should always go farther and see, um, you know, make sure um, because in a lot of our small towns, especially there, and I'm not calling Chattanooga a small town, but just, it does seem to me, you know, in the bigger cities is where kind of the specialists are, that have seen those cases so much more and so much more often. And it's, it's not as foreign to them. Um, and so I, I totally agree with you and your part about letting people help you. It's a, if it's not something that you've had to do in your lifetime, it can be a hard thing to let people in, but it's such a beautiful thing to let people in. And then just as you said, it's such a gift to them that they, because there's almost no worse feeling than feeling helpless. And so if you're watching someone, you know, and love who's hurting and they're and you have that feeling of helplessness, it's, it's awful. But if you bring them a meal or you take their kids or you drop off a gift card, some of that helplessness goes away. And so, um, I totally agree. Let people in. Well, how's your family doing today? How's Dolly today? And how, how's your family today? Everybody is great. I remember like maybe before I even had her, somebody said to me, um, something really beautiful is about to happen and you have a front row seat to watch it all. And that's kind of how I feel right now. Like I, I've seen so many beautiful things come out of this situation. Dolly is awesome. She is in a wheelchair. She started kindergarten this year. She's thriving. She's so popular. (laughs) All the little (laughs) kids like love her wheelchair. They, 
you know, everybody's like, your wheelchair's so cool. And like, they all want to help her. She actually, she gets aggravated. She's like, let me do it, you know, because they're <laughs> always trying to jump in. Um, the big kids are great. Like my oldest, her best friend has cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's like she yeah. naturally knows who needs help. She's been, it's been really interesting to see how surrounded my family has become with people that are different. Like we've had um, a teacher in first grade that had dwarfism. We've had a best friend with cerebral palsy. We've had a blind uh, wife of the principal, like, and they're just so, it's so nice how they don't, they don't even see it. My kids, like, it's really beautiful that they're just very open-armed and um, loving. So I always said, if I can raise my kids to be the ones that find the child sitting by themselves at lunch and sit next to them, then I don't care if they're straight A's or the best player on the team. Like, I feel like I've done my job. And right now they're doing great. Like everybody's doing really, really good. Good. That's awesome. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing your story and Dolly's story and y'all's journey. I know that this is going to be a huge blessing to other families because I think doing this, you know, for a while now, one of the hardest I feel like I've families that have struggled with is when there's a diagnosis in the womb and there's so much unknown. And you know, if you, if you start Googling things, we all know, you know, you're going to get some really hard stories and hopefully you're going to get some hopeful ones too, but you're going to have some very realistic doctors who are going to shoot you straight because they have to. Um, but it can feel very lonely, very isolating. Um, and so you just saying, Hey, me too. It happened to us we're doing okay. It hadn't been the easiest road. It hasn't been, you know, like it was with my other two, but it's been beautiful in its own way. And um, I think that's a a wonderful thing for others to hear, whether it's spina bifida that their child is diagnosed with or something else, um, just to know, to see the hope and the joy and the, um, just how well y'all are doing. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing Dolly with us. And uh, we just really appreciate it. Well, thank you for doing everything that you're doing, because I will tell you, I mean, you know, too, but when situations like this happen or when you're in a really traumatic situation, you really, people tell you all of these things. You need to call this, write down this, email this, whatever. And you are just blackout. You're nowhere. You don't know what's going on. And to have organizations that are here to help, to be there for you in crisis mode, it's hard. It's really hard to do the research and to find those resources. And a lot of times you're not emotionally or mentally there to do it. So you all were a huge blessing to our family. Um, And I just, I really do hope that other families can find you guys and that they can work with you because we just really appreciate everything you've done. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.